0: Kevin Rose and his guests are not registered investment advisors. All opinions are Kevin's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for investment decisions, nor is it investment advice. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Please work directly with an investment professional. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Modern Finance and Proof Consensus. This is the show that covers all the latest NFT and crypto news. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Aftab, aka DC Investor, at I DC Investor on Twitter. Aftab, welcome.
1: Hey Kevin, thanks for having me back on. I'm excited to chat with you again today,
0: dude. I always have so much fun when we we jump into this stuff because you you and I, I think we have we have a lot of overlap, but then we have some stuff that you know neither of us knows. And I feel like I always learn something, and uh, it's fun to hash out and debate some of this stuff as well. Yeah, likewise, I always appreciate your perspective, Kevin. Awesome. So I figured we divide this show into two parts because obviously it's funny. I don't know if you get this pushback too, but some people are like, "Give me more NFT stuff," and some people are like, "I've had enough NFT stuff. Like, give me more <laughs> crypto talk." There, there seems to be two camps. So I, I figured upfront, the first half of the show we talk about NFTs. Second half of the show, and I can put a marker in the show notes, letting people know if they're like, "Hey, I'm not into NFTs," they can just jump. Just directly to the back half of the show, we're, we're going to be talking about the Solana outage and Arbitrum launch and Robinhood's new crypto app. A lot of stuff to cover there as well. So if that's cool with you, that's the
1: way we'll do it. Let's do it. All right. You have the first topic. You want to kick it off? Sure. And, you know, I've seen some comments from folks on Twitter in really the past couple of weeks and they're from people who have had their NFTs stolen and their other assets from various blockchains. A lot of them are on Ethereum. And I think it's important just to remind people on how to keep these assets secure. And I think if you, first of all, until you learn how to keep these assets secure, I recommend even not participating in the space because I think it's important to understand how these technologies work. And well, I would say I would offer a caveat where if you're dealing with a very small dollar amount and you just want to get started, it's fine to use a hot wallet in MetaMask for like very small dollar amounts where if the entire contents of that wallet were to be lost, you wouldn't necessarily be financially harmed. But a lot of people have purchased NFTs or Ether or other assets and the value of them has gone up by quite a bit in the past couple of weeks and months. And all of a sudden, what you thought was just a random buy is now worth a lot of money. For those people, I really recommend that you purchase what is called a hardware wallet. I think most people know what this is, but this is basically like a small USB key size device, which is basically um, a small little computer. And on that computer is stored a private key. And that private key, also known as like your seed words, your secret passphrase, and so on, that is basically the keys to your account. If someone else were to get a copy of those words or that passphrase, they basically control your account too. Yeah, you know, you could, you, it's, I don't even think of it as theft necessarily at that point. It's like they are now a co owner because they have access to those words. So you really need to safeguard those words in a very serious way. So the value of a hardware wallet is those words get initialized on that device. You write them down and they, the words are never directly communicated to your computer, which is connected to the internet in most cases, right? right? And so that's why it's important to use this kind of device. But the other really important thing is, and I've seen a lot of scams that are getting more sophisticated, is they'll try to trick you into entering those words on a website. And so let me be clear, if any web page is asking you to enter in your private key, or if MetaMask is asking you to enter it in after initial setup, you're probably being scammed and you need to stop what you're doing right now. And these scams are incredibly prevalent. I've seen them multiple times just in doing my course of business. I'm able to identify them. A lot of other people might not be able to. And one final comment on these the secret passphrase or seed words is that once you have them initialized on your hardware wallet, do not go and enter them even into MetaMask on your computer because then you've defeated the purpose of the hardware wallet. And MetaMask will, in some cases, take those same seed words and allow you to access the same accounts. But the point is, you want to keep them segregated in that offline device, so to speak. Right. Yet the one thing that really
0: freaked me out in the last few days is I saw there was a Twitter post about someone that said they were receiving NFTs as gifts, which if you get enough NFTs in your account, and especially the the kind of high dollar NFTs, other people out there will say, hey, I want to make this person aware of my project. And so they gift you free NFT. So every mm-hmm. single day, my account receives probably three to four free NFTs. And most of them are completely worthless. So don't think of this is like, oh, Kevin's making a ton of money out of this." Like We get random. I'm sure you get this as well, right? Just like yep. random stuff hitting your account. Well, there was a post by someone. Did you see this where they said... They had just interacted with one of these gifted NFTs, and then they lost some other NFTs that were stolen
1: from their account. Did you see that post? I did see that. And I'm not sure exactly what happened there, Kevin. But you know, he, here's what I'll say about that exploit is, one, in general, it's a good idea not to interact with assets that you don't recognize in your account. I mean, I get tons of this spam. Some people want to make it look like I've collected certain NFTs. I just ignore 100% of them. Do you have yeah, them? I, I, I haven't gone through that process on OpenSea, but I probably will at some point. They're just something that I don't pay attention to. It's like I typically will have my gallery and gallery.so anyway. So it doesn't really matter to me. And I encourage most people to just take that approach because why do you even want to spend the gas to get rid of something from your wallet in a situation like that? But, but I think in that case, just the exploit that occurred, I think what the, the, the hypothesis is that that person stored those private keys on their computer. And it was actually the private key that was compromised, not necessarily the fact that they interacted with the dodgy NFT asset. So that's just something to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I just that one kind of freaked me out because initially when I saw it, in my mind, there was no real way to pull that off. Like if you think about it, the act of going onto OpenSea, selecting some random NFTs that you did not, you know, you self-purchase and just choosing the hide feature is just, you're just signing the message when you're going into OpenSea and then you're executing some JavaScript to tell the backend servers just to hide those, right? So I wouldn't imagine that that could be exploitable in any way unless OpenSea had been compromised. So right. I didn't see a real exploit here. It did freak me out for a minute. I'm like, okay, well, until people get to the bottom of this, I'm just not going to use OpenSea because I thought maybe there is an active exploit on OpenSea that I'm just not aware of. But I, I haven't seen anything that that, that sh-
1: uh, says that that is actually the case. Yeah, and I've talked to some developer types who basically say that there's not really a true exploit path for what happened there. And if you actually look at the uh, the transactions that were signed by that wallet, It was done by someone who had access to the private key. Mm. So I think what's very likely is this person had a copy of those seed words stored somewhere unencrypted on their computer or worse in the cloud, which people do, right? And people gain access to those cloud storage accounts. And this is now becoming a very common attack vector. And maybe like three years ago, if someone saw 12 random words in a text file, they wouldn't know what it is. Now everyone knows what it is. So I think it's important that people are just really cautious and vigilant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a hardware wallet is is a good suggestion. A couple of things there, I think worth mentioning on the hardware wallet side. You know, I have tried a bunch of them out there. The two big players in the space are Trezor and Ledger, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I love, 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 love Trezor's like just really beautiful, awesome interface. It works so well for cryptocurrency. It sucks for NFTs. Like you have no idea what you're doing when you're doing a transfer. And it's like you're you're like approving something, and there's just a bunch of numbers on the screen. Same, more or less, goes for Ledger. I did talk to someone over at that runs product over at Ledger, and 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 I also chatted with the co-founder. They are making NFTs a first class citizen, so that is coming very soon. You will see. A lot mm. of the UI and the interface dedicated to understanding what you're transferring on the NFT front. But they're even with the hardware wallets, they are confusing. Am I missing anything? Are there any other wallets that you've hardware wallets that you've checked out, or are those the two that you stand by?
1: I mean, I think that those are two, those are the two that are the best for most people. And there's also Grid Plus has their own hardware wallet, which is a little bit more sophisticated, but is based on access cards and gives you more information on your contract interactions. I think a huge limitation of any of these wallets, though, is just your ability. And even I, as like an experienced operator and you, when we look at these strings saying like what you're doing, it can be hard to tell what's going on and exactly what you're approving. So you always need to make sure you're like on the right website. You always need to kind of double check the address that's there to the extent that you can interpret that contract data, make sure you do it. It's really easy to get sloppy and kind of lose everything. And I think it's important just to remember, to a very large extent, we're still in the wild west of this technology. I think it's going to get like exponentially easier to use in the next two to three years. But right now is still like a tricky time. Yeah. Two two questions for you. One, Grid Plus,
0: I have a unit from them I just received. I'm going to start playing with it. I like that it's manufactured in Texas and I, apparently an all-U.S. team. And I, I'm not trying to slight any other countries. Like, you know, ledgers are made in France. It's awesome. And I can't remember where treasures are made. But I, I am a little scared of these unknown startups in in you know that are coming out of China. And I, I just am not sure about the chips. And
1: I want to make sure that everything is secure there. Do you know the Grid Plus team at all? I do know some members of the Grid Plus team. And I have... A lot of confidence and kind of the types of products that they're working to develop. And I also have one of the units that I'm going to be setting up here within the next week or two. But I think it's just a great option because it's, it is, it is just stepping up some of that security and it's making it a little bit more full featured. So. I do think it's a great option that more advanced users can consider.
0: I'm going to have the CEO or I'm going to try and get the CEO on the show because I think I, I want to do with any of these things. You know, part of the reason why I had the head of risk for for BlockFi and also for for Gemini is I wanted to make sure that the lending stuff was secure on the back end. And I, this is one of those things where I actually want to talk to a human, you know, like who's behind yep. this project that kind of freaks me out. So. I'll do that. I have also heard rumors that Coinbase, their custody service, which is used for institutional assets currently and not really a consumer product, is going to be offering NFT storage. Would you ever trust a Coinbase uh, with holding your NFTs?
1: I might. And I might consider a custody solution for some of my NFTs at some point. It's not a bridge that I've crossed yet, but it is something that I'm seriously thinking about. I think that in general, I think in general, some of these custody services will become more accessible and more mainstream so that people will be able to interact with various apps through a custody provider. And I'm actually surprised it's taken this long for those kinds of products to reach mainstream. So I don't know if there's regulatory issues or certain liability issues, but I think eventually we'll work through those. I think the other thing to keep an eye on is what are called smart contract wallets. And as, especially as Ethereum moves more towards a layer two architecture, we will eventually be able to see us use smart contract wallets where you don't necessarily need to safeguard a private key, but you instead name designated contacts who can help you restore your account in, in the event of a loss. So I think architectures like that are probably closer to what the future will look like.
0: Yeah, I agree. Trezor has a really beautiful solution there. I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but they essentially give you the ability to divide up your secret key in a number of different, like printouts. So you can say, I want to print out eight different pages that I want to hand to eight different friends. And then you set the number of different the printouts and the special words on that page that are required to restore your secret key. So you can say, actually, I need four of the eight to provide me the paperback or three of the eight or whatever you decide. And then if you get those papers back from those people, you know, they're supposedly storing them in a safe place, then you can restore the entire wallet, which is pretty cool. And then you get your secret phrase back, but none of them can do it independently unless they were in cahoots and and worked with each other. But yeah, solutions like that are really interesting. So loot, loot, loot has been crazy. Do do you own (laughs) any loot NFTs?
1: I don't, but I think it's a really interesting project and I'll, I'll give folks just like a quick overview of what it is but basically this this was released by dom who was i believe the founder of vine which was kind of like a short video network that was around for a while and loot I, I think there were eight thousand in total and they were basically given away for free and if you look at the loot nft any loot nft it's like a series of eight like And they basically read like RPG items. And so they'll be like divine hook, hard leather armor, hard leather belt. And if you've ever played an RPG, you kind of have a feeling for what I'm talking about. And there's nothing else that's necessarily provided with this, okay? It's just those words and the metadata associated with that. And so the real question is like, so, so, and Don basically said, look, this we're just putting this out there into the community now. If people want to go develop something on top of it, go do that. So some people have talked about this as the Wi-Fi or the Urn, which which some people from DeFi Summer a year ago will remember was a token that I'll, that was basically given away to people who are farming it. In a similar way, some people are talking about this as the Wi-Fi of NFTs. So so my general thought on concepts like this is they're definitely interesting. I think the idea of being able to seed a composable nft community where you're taking where if you're a game designer you're taking nfts that already exist perhaps for different purposes and you're integrating them into your game and you're inviting those people to join your community that's pretty interesting to me however i think it, as it's important to remember with any project like this where and in this case i respect that the loot team dom is not promising anything. He's just like, we're putting it out there. But really, the the future value of this is going to be based on what people build around. So whenever I see that, I always ask myself, well, what is the incentive for future developers to build on this? How can it be extended so that more people can participate? And what is the long-term viability of it? So I think there's a lot of interesting proposals for stuff that could be built on Loot, but I want to see it kind of in operation personally.
0: Yeah, it it speaks to this phenomenon of kind of this bottoms-up development process where something like this is just a general overarching framework and now they're saying, okay, teams rally around it, use the the structure and extend it. In, in new and interesting ways. And there's already been you know airdrops of you know coins on top of loot. So what was the loot currency called? Um, I'm blanking on that
1: one. It's but- called like um, Adventurer's Gold, I right. think is what it's called. Exactly. Which for
0: each person was worth quite a bit of money that if they were holding one of these original loot tokens, you receive some of that Adventurer's Gold and that was instantly tradable. I believe FTX started trading it. And, and and there was a it had a pretty decent market cap when it first started trading but that that goal was uh, supposedly was to be used in some type of a, a game that's developed eventually or to incentivize teams to develop games around this so it'll be interesting to see if the masses can come together and coordinate something that is a real playable fun thing like what gets built on top of this and does that work because I would say there's something about the uh, game development model when you're an EA or when you're a big game studio or even independent game studio, you have the focus, the drive, the dates you need to hit, the, the resources that you need to go and develop something very special. I don't know that you can coordinate such an effort across, you know, random volunteers. I just have never seen it done. What, what are your thoughts there?
1: I, I think I, I think I agree with you pretty strongly in that in the sense of you know it's definitely an interesting idea but there are coordination problems here that are difficult to solve and I would say the distribution of the eight thousand loot bags isn't exactly ideal we've already seen a bunch of funds pile into this and presumably they're interested in participating to speculate not necessarily to play the game and so yeah and there have been other things like I, I believe Dom had issued a spec for how. Any wallet could be used to generate a non-transferable loot bag based on basically the public key of that wallet. So I think ideas like that are interesting. But at the end of the day, it is about the ownership of these items and being able to transfer them. That's what makes Web three interesting. And so right now, this is at eight thousand. I I just if we can see a couple of successful products and games can get traction on it, then I'll be a lot more interested in this long term. But for now, it's not something that necessarily like buying into, but I mean, that's okay. There's a lot of things in the space that I think are interesting that I don't necessarily take positions in.
0: Yeah, it's it's I, I, I purchased one. I got one with a divine mm-hmm. robe, which is the divine robes are one of the the more scarce kind of attributes that you can find out there. Just because I heard there was a discord community of just divine robe members. And so I was like ooh what's that about It sounds secret and so I went and <laughs> i offed my wallet just so I could get into the secret discord of divine robe members and you know it was cool i mean there's a lot of people in there that are old school d and d which I, I include myself in that group I was a pen and paper d and d fan and they're talking about designs and what could be done with it and it was it was a it was a pretty fun little community to pop in and out of but Yeah, I'm just I'm kind of sitting on the sidelines. But I I think this speaks to a larger trend that we're seeing here, where projects are figuring out they're trying to figure out. um, One, I think, well, there's a couple things. If you're a PFP project, and you're launching something that is, you know, eight, 10,000 drops. You, it's now table stakes to say, I can't just be a one and done. I can't be a, I have my really cool graphic here. It's out. I sold out and I'm done. You have to figure out how can I extend that brand into other projects or other drops or to continue to add value over the years to really prop up the project, to keep the community around and prevent them from bouncing to the next thing. And I think Mm -hmm. Bored Apes is a great example of a project that has gone out and said, Hey, we're we're going to continue to extend this by adding new functionality to these initial um, apes that that came out. Which which is they continue to drop value on the community. I'm seeing this happen. You know, I think Punk Punk's Comics is another great example. Is that something where are you a holder of uh, Punk's Comic?
1: I am. Yeah, and I, I I had bought a bunch during the initial mint, and I think it's been really interesting to watch the journey. Of Punk's comic, which started off as kind of we all bought into these Punk's comic assets issue number one. I don't remember exactly what the total number was. I think it was like between 8,000 and 10,000, but I bought many of them, a, a bunch of them. And I kind of just like, I knew some of the members of the founding team, like a guy who goes by G Funk on, on Twitter. He is kind of the head of this um, Pixel Vault team. And so it was really just a bet on what can this team kind of deliver. And since then, they've evolved that comic into what they're calling the meta hero ecosystem. And really the way that this is going to work is they have been the airdropped every holder of the comic, a mint pass, which allowed them to mint a meta hero and also... You could burn the comics for tokens than the founders DAO. So it's actually a pretty complex, like economic game that they've created. But I find it like really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see how this evolves because the premise is that the Meta Hero universe is going to be part of a game, and there's and they're helping to create a DAO called UpDAO that's going to promote that game development. So again, this is kind of this is a more focused type of development model but i can see how this is playing out. And i'm seeing the community around these assets kind of gain a lot of steam and and i think there is a lot of value in those asset driven communities and i i do think it's fair to say kevin that like probably 90 of them are not going to lead anywhere but mm-hmm. maybe more than that but then you do have like the apes who came out of kind of nowhere and i know even like guys like you and me were like well is this going to have staying power? I think the answer so far is yes. You know, to the that's point right. where these assets are being auctioned off at Christie's now for millions of dollars. Also, so they've kind of jumped into relevance. But a lot of assets are not necessarily going to make that transition. Yeah, that's
0: right. And I, I think the Punk's comic is. You know, I, I bought a few early on as well, and I, I burnt a couple because the Dow proposition when you burn them and you get access to their holdings there, it's actually pretty compelling. But it's also interesting to think like, well, I can also create a meta hero and and they they give you this token that you later can redeem for another character. So it's hard to say which way you go. What are you doing with yours? Have you decided to go
1: meta hero route or burn and and hold some of the DAO? So it's definitely like a lot of like trade-offs. And so what I decided to do was I took half of my comics up front and I burned them for the DAO tokens, Mm -hmm. okay? And then I still have a bunch of comics left And for each of the ones that I had left, I got a mint pass for those. And so I redeemed half of the mint passes for that. Okay. And so now I have half of them as meta heroes. I'm going to hold on to the rest of the mint passes for now, Mm. because you're eligible for some of these special meta hero drops. If you have those, the other way that I also think about it, Kevin is like, you know, for for like, I, I think about it as almost like these mint passes are unopened product, almost like booster boxes for trading card games. Right. And so- There is a, there, as the number of mint passes decreases, the expected value of the mint from each remaining mint pass potentially is above like the average value Mm. of a Meadow Hero. I mean, this is kind of deeper economic thing, but I don't know if it'll play out this way, but this is how how
0: I'm thinking about it. Dude, this is like the old school, you know, baseball cards. Like if you go and you get a series one upper deck, you know, uh, that is sealed, if you open up that pack, there's a chance there's a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card in there, right? And like, that's right. You just don't know, right? And so as long as it hasn't been like, back in the day, we used to worry about people like taking an iron and melting the wax in the back of the packs and taking all the good cards, you know? So you right. never knew what you had when you bought an actual physical pack. But this is this is kind of the same thing, but you actually, as long as they don't expire, right? Because that's sometimes with these types of tokens, they'll say, well, you can have the token, but you have to claim it by a certain date, right? So you kind of mm-hmm. have to keep make sure that that is going to be an ongoing thing where this will be around and and claimable for the for the future in the future.
1: Yeah, and I think you know in this case, don't quote me on this, but I don't believe that the mint passes expire, so you can hold them. And there are also other rewards that they're giving to people who are holding on to the mint pass. If you have like a comic and mint pass and a hero and one other one of the other tokens, I can't remember, you're going to be eligible for like an earth token Dow drop. So it's gotten a little bit complicated, but I think another, here's a simple way to think about it with these sealed tokens, if you will, where you kind of have to burn them to get something else. The supply of those can only go down over time, whereas the supply of the other side can only go up. And so that's and that's and you see that reflected in like traditional trading card booster boxes for that reason as well because they can only be opened you can't go in reverse right yeah that's a good point well that's uh, that's really cool I have a couple
0: mint passes that I have not cracked into meta heroes yet so maybe I just hold on to those I'm going to check on the expiration to make sure and confirm that but I, I like what Punk's comic is doing I think that this is a great example of a Kind of more centralized approach that is still taking input from the community, that for me has been the winning combination. It is the, the eight play where you do have you know they are developing things on their own that they're not telling people about, but they're still taking feedback from from the bottoms up kind of community. I think that's going to be the winning combination. Speaking of PFP projects, a Tez, uh, the Tezos NFTs, the Tezards you, you've seen tezards. I, I, I want to get your thoughts on them.
1: I have and I saw that you had one. I thought it was pretty cool. And they're so cool. (laughs) They look like a lot of fun. And I haven't I haven't looked into these yet. And I know, you know, we have been talking about this, but I, you know, I think it's great that we're seeing NFT ecosystems emerge really across the landscape. And while while I haven't collected any NFTs off of Ethereum yet, that might not be like a permanent condition. But for me, you know, when I think about what attracts me to NFTs, it really is some of like that crypto ethos and some of the, you know, and I think a lot of that is reflected in the Ethereum community and it is reflected other crypto communities as well. But for now, my assets are on Ethereum. I'm certainly looking more and more at stuff that's happening on other chains. And I don't want to discourage anyone from kind of minting their NFT wherever they want to really, because I think I understand the mindset of like, well, we can't afford to have like everything on Ethereum. And it will probably never scale to the point where everyone who wants to create something will be able to do it on Ethereum. So I think it's important that people have ways to express that wherever they want to. Now, of course, every chain has its own trade-offs and Ethereum is included in that. So I think people should take the time to understand that, understand if your chain has like on-chain governance and if that's something that you want to participate in and so on. But I think it's great to see that some of these communities are expanding no matter where they are.
0: Yeah, I agree. And the Tezos are the are the first kind of big PFP project that is released on the Tezos blockchain. hen is, a, you know, obviously a, a a very large marketplace on Tezos. It's a horrible application. It's it's like it's it, it's breaks all the time, and it is just apparently. I don't know the the head engineer, but I've been told that. They are extremely difficult to work with, and they basically tell people to go elsewhere if they complain about certain bugs and things like that. So there is a lot of supporting kind of new other types of ways to browse that marketplace because it is an open marketplace. And so people are extending it and creating new interfaces for it, which I think will, will bode well for Tezos. Tezos, as a chain, I'm not a huge... Huge fan of. I, I like the upgradability of it, and and some of the things that they've done. But I, I've just I've seen issues when they. The, so basically, what happens is they have this thing on hin where they'll the, all these NFT artists will give away an NFT. They like pick a day and they like have this like little open free for all, and mm-hmm. it always breaks breaks the blockchain. And it just like it's like things slow. I can't say I shouldn't say break. It's not like the the chain falls over, but it slows down to where it's unusable. That's been my experience. And even so much so that when I'm trying to load my wallet, I can't even get my stats about how many Tezos I have in my wallet. And it's just like, so I'm worried about the scalability of the Tezos chain long term if NFTs become more and more popular on that chain. I'm curious though, because you are so deep in the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, speaking Mm -hmm. of scalability, you know, Polygon is being supported now. Like if you go to NiftyKit, which is a really popular platform for minting NFTs, you can mint Polygon NFTs, you can mint them on, which is the layer two scaling solution for Ethereum. You can also do that on OpenSea as well. Have you seen any NFTs that have value being minted on a layer two? I
1: I, I mean, I think there's a lot of NFTs that are out there and I don't track a lot of the value. So I don't own really any of those NFTs yet, but it is something that I'm looking at. I do own some like apps and things like that, which are like proof of attendance protocol badges on Polygon and stuff like that. So I think those are those are fun. And that's a great that's a great type of application for a lower value network where you might not need like the same security. But yeah, I don't know that I've seen like there haven't been as many really high value NFTs on layer twos or even on other layer ones in a lot of respects. We might be seeing that start to change a little bit. I think a lot of that just boils down to where is the liquidity and the liquidity in this programmable smart contract ecosystem is still like 90% or more predominantly on Ethereum. And so for as long as that remains the case, I expect that a lot of the really high value work is going to remain on Ethereum. Does that mean that work on other chains and in other places and in layer twos doesn't gain value? Absolutely not. I think it will over time. I also think a limitation with the layer twos, Kevin, on Ethereum is certainly with like the new optimistic rollups and side chains like Polygon. Is there tends to be a bridging delay in terms mm-hmm. of how long it takes for your asset to hit those layer twos or side chains? In the case of Arbitrum, which is a new layer two on Ethereum, that I think the delay is like seven days, and so you haven't seen like a lot of NFTs make that journey. I think as we move into more of a new technology, which is called ZK roll-up. And that's really going to start to, we already have some higher throughput roll-ups, which make some decentralization trade-offs live, like Immutable X. But in the future, let's say four to five months from now, we're going to have more of these, what are called ZK roll-ups. And one of their properties is you can make instant deposits and withdrawals from Ethereum layer one. And so I could take an Ethereum-based asset, like a CryptoPunk or whatever, move it into a ZK roll-up, it in a marketplace there transact with it or trade it or whatever and then when i'm done i can even bring it back to layer one it pretty much immediately so i think some of those architectures are going to be more of the future
0: yeah that's exactly what was going to be my next question is i am not against collecting something on a layer two but i want the optionality that if said nft asset just increases a ton in value so if you're sitting there and you're like oh my gosh i bought this thing for one ethereum and now it's worth a hundred can I bring it back to layer one for the additional security? And so what mm-hmm. you're saying is
1: that that will be a possibility. With ZK rollups. I do think it will be. I, I do, And I have been talking to ZK rollup teams offline, and I've been sharing with them the perspectives of NFT collectors like you and me, where it is important that we'd be able to... And maybe we never do it, right? Maybe we just... If we mint an asset on a layer two a ZK roll up, maybe we just keep it there forever. I don't know. But I think the ability to be able to bring it back to layer one is pretty important just for the provenance, for the economic security, for that comfort. And I think that that ability will actually give some of those works potentially more value.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it is I I feel I would have no problem. And I I would prefer to do it in a way that isn't taxing on gas and that, you know, I could just quickly transact and all the beauty that comes with layer twos. But I want the optionality to to bring it back to a safe, in my mind, at least a safer place, you know, Um, that's right. Cool. Well, we'll wait and see what happens there. Now you said you had a story about OpenSea controversy. What happened there?
1: Yeah. And so I think that uh, I think some people listening to this might be familiar. And I think this is a good cautionary tale, really, for the entire industry. And first of all, I really, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the business that OpenSea has built. I have a lot of respect for the fact that they've helped scale this marketplace activity in a way where a lot more people can participate in NFTs and so on. What happened here was anyone who's used OpenSea, typically if you go to their splash page, their homepage they kind of have a couple of featured projects on the front page that people can go on and and they can see what those projects are. And and it's kind of like a, it is a form of promotion, but I believe it's mostly driven by whatever is trending on the marketplace. What happened was they had an employee, a fairly senior one who was seeing those listings before they went live. And in some cases he was buying NFTs in advance of that and then selling them after the announcement went live. Mm. And so so this creates, it, it was kind of, and I'll be honest with you, Kevin, the amounts that were being traded by that employee were relatively nominal. I mean, they weren't like huge sums of money, but what it presented was, it's kind of like it, it presents a potential loss of trust when you have an actor like that who is working truly as an intermediary, kind of potentially front running their customers. So I don't want to overplay it. I think what that person did was wrong. I do think that they recognize that. And that person has since left OpenSea, and so I think that that was the right action to take in this case. And OpenSea has issued a statement apologizing for the hate behavior, promising kind of more stringent rules around how their employees can act. But I think this is a problem which could really hit any major project in the ecosystem. And I and I think a lot of this These are things that people in quote the traditional business world I already understand. It's like if you have access to insider information. You have to act with a certain level of maturity and responsibility around that information. I think for a lot of people in the web three space, a lot of whom are younger and maybe don't have those experiences, don't appreciate the importance of kind of operating professionally and and really think the, you know, the test that I've encouraged everyone to think about, Kevin, is if this, if what you're doing gets published in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and becomes the front, the front headline story on CNBC, are you going to be embarrassed by? And that's right. a good litmus test to be like, am I doing the right thing or not?
0: That, that's a great point. But I also think at the same time, it's important to let people know there is a difference between true SEC regulated entities that where insider information is an illegal th- act. And mm-hmm. just knowing something new and unique about an NFT project, while it would be shameful to trade on that information, it is not the same as SEC regulated entities where it is actually illegal correct? That's
1: right. That's correct. It's definitely not legally equivalent. I don't want to imply that at all. Because I mean, in some of these cases, the activity is not necessarily illegal, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do. Right. Yeah.
0: That's. It's hard. This is a hard one for me, too. And it must be for you as well, where, you know, there are some of these, these projects where I will go like Punk's Comic, for example. You know, I had a handful of them and I was like, this is cool. We should mention them on the podcast. And this was months ago. You know, I mentioned on the podcast, and because there are so many NFT fans that listen to this podcast, the floor price rose up by, you know, 50% or whatever after the, right. the podcast went out. And so my you know, it's like in some sense, I'm like, you know, that that's good for me, right? But I, I I've just taken the stance that I just don't sell. So I'm not like trying to pump it and then dump it, right? Like that's that would be the bad thing to do in that sense. So uh, you know, I, I have to be able to talk about these things, and I'm all obviously going to talk about the things that I love. So it's 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 challenging. So I always try to provide as much kind of transparency there as well. When I do mention a project, I, and I know it's going to move the floor, I'll I'll say that I have one. Like I, for example, I have a teser, but everyone knows that because it's my Twitter profile <laughs> photo right now. Right. But but yeah, so it's it is challenging but i can see where opensea did the right thing here you know this happened before on coinbase because coinbase they had some employees that were you know working there that obviously knew about which coins were going to be listed before other people and that mm-hmm. would leak out and then people would find out oh guess what Solana's coming to, I'm just making this one up. It wasn't an issue, but Solana's coming right. to Coinbase. And then all of a sudden, boom, the price goes up because they know once there's a listing there, that means so many more average consumers have access to it and the price will typically jump. So that one to me feels a lot more like insider trading in a, yeah. in a regulated world. But but yeah, th- this was this is good. What what the hell has been going on with OpenSea with the with the metadata issues? Have you run into this?
1: I have, yeah. And I, I, I'm not, I think part of it may be an Artbox API error and some of it may be an OpenSea issue. But yeah, just the way that they've been displaying Artbox sets in particular, I've had a lot of trouble with lately. And where I was able to browse certain sets easily, it's now a lot more difficult. And I think it kind of goes to this idea of, well, a big all-purpose marketplace, which is trying to serve every single NFT project in the entire space and charges 2.5% listing fee for everything that's traded. I don't know if that's like the future, Kevin. My my general hypothesis is that we're going to move towards more localized marketplaces for each NFT set, perhaps even, perhaps even every NFT set. And those are going to perhaps charge lower fees and really give people the opportunity to transact in a censorship-resistant way. And then maybe we're going to have aggregators on top of that. And I think hmm. over time, That feels like a more decentralized future and probably more sustainable than everybody just listing all liquidity on one kind of semi-centralized marketplace.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's challenging, right? Because in some sense, the reason why eBay is so big is because they have the eyeballs. And the reason you list on eBay, no one loves eBay. (laughs) I don't think there's a single (laughs) person that loves eBay. It's like the worst interface ever when you're listing things. It's like, you know, my eBay account that I'm dating myself was created in 2000. And I still recognize a lot of the layout. I'm like, oh, that's yeah, the same way I used to listen to in 2000. <laughs> so it's 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 one of those things where, you know, to your earlier point about liquidity, like the the buyers are on OpenSea. That's how they're searching and browsing. So I I don't see how this can get fragmented. Like, what what scenario in your mind plays out to where that works?
1: So I think the key difference with like an eBay is that eBay is the trusted party in each of those transactions and people trust eBay. And that is why it has such a strong liquidity effect. That doesn't mean that other marketplaces haven't been able to take off. They've been able to take off in more niche, mm-hmm. right? So like Etsy was able to really break into the space of like those handcrafted goods. Right. And it was able to do that because they felt like they weren't being served by like the way eBay was presenting their content and their, the stuff that they're selling. Right. And so I think similarly, there's going to be an opportunity for NFTs, for for custom sites, and for contracts which allow people to trade. I think the big difference with on-chain activity is we don't need the eBay as the trusted intermediary. Right. We can all just trust the the, the blockchain, basically. Right. And so, so if we can get to that point, I could definitely see a future where like Art Blocks has its own marketplace, and maybe it's using a common set of public good contracts under like a you know free and open license where any project can basically create their own marketplace when they create a set and then liquidity starts to aggregate there because it's low fee or no fee and i could see art blocks having an incentive to do that because they already get a small percentage of all transactions anyway so they might say well for the marketplace we're not going to charge anything similar to how CryptoPunk started, started i think this is kind of like going back to basics I would like to see the space go back to basics and mm-hmm. look at what Lava Labs did with CryptoPunks and their zero fee marketplace. Yeah, that was well ahead of its time. Yeah, I mean the, I I agree that so
0: the reason why Larva Lava Labs with CryptoPunks worked is because they were not the ERC721 standard, right? So it was you had to wrap them to get them on OpenSea, which was another additional hurdle. It did right. not work so well with MeBits, right? They do have a marketplace for MeBits. The majority of transactions do not happen on Loverlob's Mebit site. They they have happen on OpenSea, right? So, that's that's yeah. I, you know I, who's doing this well is Super Rare. So I would mm-hmm. not sell an X copy on on OpenSea because Super Rare has the they have been known as this like super collectible one of one marketplace. They have high net worth collectors. If you're going to sell an X copy, you do it on, well, especially it has to be a super rare X copy, but you're going to do it on, on super rare, right? Right. That's someone that's carved out a little bit of a niche there.
1: So I think that, I think the problem actually is one of discoverability more than anything. And I think the the MeBits example is very instructive because you're right. People just started listing them on OpenSea anyway, because the tools for discoverability were perhaps better on OpenSea. I I haven't actually compared the two, but that's one possibility. But I think the more likely reality is that people were just used to listing stuff on OpenSea and they just started putting it there. So I think as we get like better aggregator solutions, which frankly don't exist, I know that a lot of teams are working on this. We will eventually see people just looking at those aggregators to buy on. Because I mean, the OpenSea UI isn't bad for some applications, but it's far from great for a lot of applications. Right. And so it all it takes is an aggregator to to do that better even for if it's like for specific genres like maybe there's an aggregator for generative art maybe there's an aggregator for profile pictures and they compete with each other to tra- you know and they charge a small fee to use those aggregators but they're competing with each other, regardless of where the underlying liquidity is. That's a great point. Like, cause if you think
0: about it, it's the cross chain stuff's going to be really interesting. Like there's no way for me to do a search for PFP and find tezzards. I have mm. to go to that chain. I have to figure out the tool for that. It'd be kind of interesting to pull all these together as we start to live in more of a cross chain world. You know, who's doing the, something pretty cool in the space is universe.xyz. So they're mm. building a decentralized marketplace, and that's been a big push of theirs is basically taking all these tools that we spend a lot of money on, on the creation side and minting side, and then also on the marketplace side and just creating it a completely decentralized platform for it. So they haven't fully launched yet. They've got a couple of projects out there, but that's, that's a good team working on, on that problem. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so upcoming Artblocks release. Were you a, a collector
1: of subscapes? I was, and I've got, I've got, I think I have like six subscapes or seven of them. And I, I tried to like hand select the ones that I really like, but I'm a big fan of Matt's work and really enjoy that set.
0: Yeah. So Matt, I, I'm going to butcher his last name, but he goes by Matt Dessel, D-E-S-L on on Twitter. Did a new post here just recently saying, here's some test outputs from Meridian, my latest long form generative art algorithm that will be released on Artblocks like, ARP Date TBD.
1: These are beautiful. Did you look at these? I did. And they look, I mean, I love the aesthetic of them and they've got like some nice variation to them, but they almost look like watercolor type aesthetic, but with a lot of really beautiful variation. Yeah,
0: I wanted to mention them here and I'm shooting myself in the foot because I'm going to be there on minting day, <laughs> trying my artists <laughs> to get a few of these. But you know, it's like, this is something everyone that's listening to the show should pay attention to because these are so hot. <laughs> this is going to be huge. And I, I feel, I'd love to get your take here, but it seems like lately the generative projects that have done well on Art Blocks are the ones that look and feel more like real traditional art
1: yeah it's it has been interesting because there's like the the fragments uh, I think it's fragments of an infinite mind yes. which which recently came out by Monica Brazulli. I hope I got her name right, but I thought that was a really interesting and kind of beautiful project, which kind of is evocative of this floral kind of arrangement. It's you see like the reeds of grass kind of flowing through them, and you've got winter spring and kind of folk fall like aesthetics. And yeah, I think that, I I think it's kind of, I think we're going to have trends, frankly, in generative art where people like different types of content and we're just going to, we're just going to go with it and it's going to be a discovery and evolution process. Yeah.
0: That, that one by Monica was fantastic. Did you happen to pick up any of those? I did. I
1: grabbed, I grabbed three of them on secondary and they were already quite expensive at that point. I, I truly wish I was able to get more, but I just thought it was a really cool set. Yeah. I'm trying to see what the floor is. Do you have any sense of what the floor is right now? Ooh, I don't know. But I mean, I, I think the last time I checked it was, I, I want to say it was like closer to 30 ETH or something like that even, or maybe like the 20 ETH. I, I honestly don't remember. Actually, now I think it's at 16 ETH.
0: Yeah, its I, I definitely want to go there and see if I can pick one up. I, I missed that one, unfortunately. One of the sites I can, I, I think I mentioned it before on the podcast, but I'll <laughs> mention it again,
1: is floors.cafe. Do you use that site at all? I, I've used that one, and I also use wgmi.io, so which is short for "We're Going to Make It." If you're immersed in the crypto culture, and, and both of them are pretty good, just to give you a sense of what current floors are.
0: Yeah, exactly. Those are two good ones to bounce between. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll keep keep people posted on Matt's uh, upcoming drop. Snoop is now in the NFT game.
1: Yeah, apparently. And so a lot of people had seen there was a new entrant to the space a few months ago who went by Cosimo Medici on Twitter. And of course, it, you know, evoking the name of Cosimo de Medici from the Renaissance period, who was a famous financier and uh collector and patron of the arts. And so as people started to see the types of assets Cosimo was purchasing a lot of rare punks a lot of rare generative art and so on a lot of people kind of started to take interest in his personality and so the other day on twitter he had he posted a tweet he's like i'm going to dox myself and reveal my true identity and so he and so this was kind of like a game that led up to in, a, in over the course of a few days and then sometime later snoop Dogg tweeted out i am Cosimo de medici the internet went insane. Twitter, Twitter went insane because it's like a Snoop Dogg actually Cosimo Medici. And you know, it, I think it's still like an open question. I, you know, if Snoop is actually like running the account or someone else's, I think probably someone else's. But the reality is, it kind of indicates that Snoop and other celebrities are now involved in this NFT game, and I think they're interested in the cultural value of the assets that are being created in this space. And actually, you know, Kevin, just as a personal, personal kind of excitement for me, so I tweeted out a sm- short little rap tweet, basically just as a joke, as I often do on my Twitter, and I kind of in- involved Cosimo de Medici in this rap, invocated based on the tune of "Gin and Juice" by Snoop Dogg, and Snoop retweeted that rap. No which way. Is probably Yeah, which is probably like my the highest achievement I'm going to get <laughs> over the course of my life. So I was really excited about that. That is amazing. I had no idea that happened. That's
0: awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I was looking through the collection that they're putting together there, and if Snoop owns this collection, bravo! I mean, just a, a fantastic collection of of great NFTs. So whoever he's working with, I can't imagine this is all Snoop doing the metamask stuff, but maybe <laughs>
1: you never you know. know. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's. A, I, and he also, by the way, changed his profile picture to a hazy Nyan Cat by Chris PR Guitar Man, who's been who is the creator of Nyan Cat. And then that's a Nyan Cat who basically has like a marijuana leaf as his body and is smoking like a joint. I think it's just it. It's really interesting to see the influx of traditional celebrities into the NFT space. I think they recognize the value of the culture that's being created, and obviously there is a lot of money associated with these assets, and you know they they get value out of participating in it. But I think it's just it is a signal of how strong the NFT culture is and how how much it can really make the leap, I think, into mainstream culture and really bring crypto culture along with it.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's funny, I think that artists, specifically music artists, they tend to just grok it and understand it right away. An odd thing that that is actually, you know, I, I was doing NFTs way back in the day and then lost touch as everyone did for a few years. And then in January of this year, I was on a clubhouse and was on one with Mike Shinoda who I've known for a few years and and Mike was like, Hey, like, what are your thoughts on all this craziness and NFTs? And I was like, oh, wh- what are you talking about? Like what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he, he was like really into this early on and just got it right away. And I was like, he actually is the, the reason why I'm now back in NFTs. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I would have caught on eventually, but he got me kickstarted again in January. And that was, and he was producing stuff on async art and a few other platforms. And it was just like, it seems like it's a natural extension for for to to kind of bridge over into this world for a lot of creative people.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lot of that as we've talked about before, boil down to the content reward models are much more favorable for the artists. There's the royalty model. Yes. And, and it just I think it's just going to attract a new level of talent that we really hadn't seen before. Now that now that the word is starting to get out, you're just going to see that I, I actually view the next 10 years are truly going to be a a non-ironic renaissance period both for crypto and crypto-based art
0: yes 100 percent agree i'm i'm really excited well speaking of attracting talent or attracting people the rise of crypto art has also attracted hedge funds mm-hmm. yeah so we got hedge funds playing in the space now we got venture capitalists playing the space a lot of institutional money coming in here what do you think the impact's going to be on on this, on this all things NFT with this kind of funds flowing in?
1: So I think it's going to be positive and negative. And I think I'll start with the positives. And I think the positives that, that include the fact that more liquidity in the system, more interest in these assets is obviously going to raise the prices. And that's going to raise, I think, the profile of these assets, perhaps to a level where traditional participants won't be able to easily ignore them. And I think in some art circles, the reputation of NFTs are. And I think even the curator of the Met said this. He said that it's like he views them mostly as a quote commercial enterprise. And I th- I don't I think there is some truth in that. Certainly, uh, for a lot of the content that is being produced, it, a lot of it is being produced more for commercial interest than for artistic value. But I don't think that's universally true. And I think it's really easy to write off the entire space with a very broad brush. But I think actually, as these values hit points where, when some of these NFTs start going for $10 million to hundred million dollars, and they're perhaps not moving around as much, it's going to be hard for some of these institutions to ignore them. Yes. And so, what we do see is a lot of, I think, crypto native hedge funds, which I which I prefer to see their involvement at this earlier stage, like Three Rs Capital. Has taken some very significant positions, and they started a fund with a famous NFT collector who goes by Vincent Van Doe. Yes, and and they've spent I don't know how much, but I think it's like a hundred million dollar plus fund, so it's not an insignificant amount. And Three Arrows Capital actually bought the Goose Ringer, which is like a yellow bodied ringer, and the ringers are a series by Dmitry Cherniak on Art Blocks. Mm-hmm. But that but that ringer went for eighteen hundred ETH or several million dollars, and it's kind of like. One of the biggest NFT sales to date, certainly for generative art. And we've seen that since duplicated in a lot of different NFTs across other high, high value art block sets, across Autoglyphs, certainly among CryptoPunks has been around for a while. Overall, I think it's good to have these funds engaged in it. It's not good if their goal is just to flip these at some point for like a 2X or something. And I don't think that a lot of funds, I know that, I mean, my my perception of what 3R's Capital is doing is these guys are already pretty wealthy. They're trying to buy these crypto culture artifacts and they see more value in buying and holding them and being a part of that culture than flipping them for like a 2X or even a 10X. And I think that is like a, great motivation to be in the space. So those are a couple of my thoughts.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is going to be a crazy, crazy world here in the next year or so, because you have... I can speak to the venture capital side, and I've mentioned this before. Anyone and everyone that is already doing some digital asset investing as a VC is considering whether or not they should be investing in NFTs as well. So, you know, uh, we, uh, true, we have our most recent fund, $700 million-ish around there. We, you know, probably have done, I would say, 75 or so-ish million if I had to guess this year in digital asset investments. And that is only going to increase over time. And, you know, as you can imagine, I'm strongly advocating that we do nFt investing as well, and it's 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 happening you know it's we haven't mm-hmm. done it to date, but it is certainly happening like for us, it's a logistics question around custody, like how can we be you know how can we properly store and hold these assets securely for our lps and so you know as I mentioned earlier with coinbase custody coming online with nFT storage and things like that, it's going to unlock a lot of new capital. And so for me, it's like, I I sit back and think, okay, well, let's just say I have uh, a couple hundred million dollars to go out and invest in NFTs. How do I do that in a way that doesn't ruin the industry and in a thoughtful way, in a way that isn't just crushing the floors on projects and, you know, but still able to deploy capital. And so some of that is, you know, going back and doing some of the bigger blue chip investments, punks, things like that. And then other bits of it are supporting new projects but in a way that doesn't dominate them so that the average consumer can't partake right so mm-hmm. it's it's going to be challenging i don't know how many venture investors are going to look at it through that lens versus just blowing up these projects and making it you know not accessible to the average consumer that said fractionalization is is a real thing and so i can imagine as these projects get bigger and bigger you know, when the floors are at a million dollars for CryptoPunks, which they will be at some point in the future, it then it's a matter of like, okay, yes, I own a fraction of a CryptoPunk as an average consumer, right? So right. it's it's that's kind of how I see it unfolding. Do you, you think that's more or less accurate? Do you think fractionalization will play a bigger and bigger role going forward?
1: I think fractionalization is definitely going to play a role and give people the ability to both gain financial, but also collector exposure to these higher value assets. I also think... Because of the nature of NFTs, there's always going to be new content that is being created, and so new newer participants will have the opportunity to buy things that are still cheaper, but ex- things that are exciting and interesting to them. So I think all of that is positive. And I, you know, my advice to any fund looking to get into the space is be thoughtful about it. If we, if, if if us as collectors get the sense that you're just buying up this stuff, you're coming in and sweeping floors because your goal is to dump it like in a year from now that is not going to play well versus like if you're buying into select sets and you're and you're articulating a thesis and you're saying this is why we think this is culturally important even being willing to like make certain commitments to like we're we're buying this because of the cultural value and we want to hold it for some period of time and we want to be stewards of this piece i think that those are like the types of dynamics that are going to earn some funds outsized respect or earn some funds not a lot of respect or the opposite of that based on how they choose to operate
0: yeah and that's exactly what we plan to do it true one of the things that is it's funny when we when we see crypto companies that come to us and they say hey we're thinking about doing a token you know we'll eventually get there for the launch it, we have a vesting schedule what do you think of our vesting schedule and it'll say you know there's a whole different um different ways that entrepreneurs will structure these vesting schedules. Some will say you have to wait a year. Some will say you have to wait 18 months. It's monthly vesting. You all vests all at the same time. There's a thousand different ways to slice and dice it. We always say the same thing. Sign us up for the longest vesting schedule possible because great businesses take decades to be built. And we want to be long-term holders and supporters of those projects. And that's not just like, you know, we've held uh, WordPress stock for 15 years It's True. And it's because that's, kind of the ethos that we want to build and you'd be surprised there are there are some great investors out there that say sign me up for a 4 year vest sign me up for a 5 year vest you'd be surprised mm-hmm. the number of investors that say I want 12 months or less it's crazy. I, I probably
1: would I probably wouldn't be
0: surprised, but yeah, I definitely hear you on that. Well, they flip. They they come in, they yeah. buy, they see their four or five X and they're out. And it's it, it just it's a rug pull on the entrepreneurs. It wrecks their prices if it's a, a big chunk of ownership in the network. That's the other thing too, is right. we always make sure that we don't have too much network ownership. So oftentimes we will invite more outside people in because we think actually too much VC dollars is a bad thing. You don't want to have that Mm -hmm. on your books. You want more community involvement. You want more DAOs to invest. Like it's, it's, it's. I don't know. It's something that we need to. I I agree. We need to be more public about. We need to state our intentions, and and really make sure that everyone's doing this for the right reasons.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really wise position to be honest, and I think. That is going to be even more important in these culturally important assets. And I think it's totally fine to have funds, institutions, corporations, and even governments buy into these assets. I do think a lot of them are going to stay in the hands of what I would call, quote, crypto natives who really want to steward these assets. And actually, Punk6529 wrote a really interesting tweet along these lines a couple of days ago, inspired by a conversation he had with Bharat Kirmo. But the conversation was along the lines of a lot of the big sets that are out there may have already been assembled by a lot of crypto native collectors who aren't necessarily going to sell off big chunks of it. Like, how many outside investors are going to come into the space right now and deploy 50 million to 100 million dollars into NFTs? Whereas you already have crypto natives who have amassed some collections like that. So, I think. Uh, my view on this is it's uh, for the crypto culture. I want the crypto culture to go like really mainstream to become one of the dominant global cultures. And I think we have to invite people to participate in that even people who might not have grown up with that ethos. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Awesome. Well,
0: let's uh, move on to some more crypto-centric stuff. actually, we have one more that about NFTs. You did a recent poll about how NFT collectors are denominating their holdings, whether in ETH or USD. What was the reason behind this?
1: So, uh, there's been a lot of discussion on are people in NFTs just to make more U.S. dollars, basically. And I think there's been a longstanding view by many in crypto that a lot of participants who have been buying like fungible tokens. Like Ether, like Bitcoin, like other assets, are basically just buying them to flip to get more U.S. dollars. And so, I wanted to challenge that assumption with NFTs, and I want to kind of ask, well, how do you measure your unrealized gains in NFTs? How are you assessing whether you're "quote unquote" winning or not? And surprisingly, or not necessarily surprisingly, but forty-eight point five percent of the respondents said that they measure their gains in ETH terms. That means their denominator is Ether, and so they view it as winning as long as they're gaining against Ether, regardless of the Ether price against U.S. dollars. 16.8% said that they evaluate it in U.S. dollar terms. 16.7% said they don't care about gains, implying that they just want to hold the assets because they view them as culturally important. And then 18% said just to see the results. So I think that was was really interesting and it kind of shows you how people are measuring their gains in Ether and the more people that do that, the more ether kind of becomes this this money within the metaverse.
0: Yes. Yeah. Agreed. I, I'm i in the same camp in that for me, if I ever think about selling an NFT and I've sold a couple, it, it's like, okay, great. Now I have more ether to deploy into other NFT projects. right? right. So it just gives me a way to d- diversify. And for me, diversity just means just more, not in a little wooden chip, but it means more NFT projects to back. So that's yeah that that's the way I look at it. And, and are you the same? Or are you just like I? I hold the majority of my crypto is in number two is actually I take that back. Majority of, uh, I take that back. Yeah, I mess up. Uh, Solana is actually the majority, yeah. but that was just because I happened to be early, and then and then it's ETH. But yeah, so that that is, and I I don't ever think about selling it. Like why would I? It's it's my transaction currency. It's what I buy right. I stuff with.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot, and and there's going to be a lot more opportunities to earn income with your Ether. Obviously, staking is here. The income is not redeemable from that yet, but after the merge between Ether Learning Two, it will be. And so I think for a lot of people, the game has kind of shifted to participating in the Ethereum economy, and one of their goals is to accumulate more Ether. And for me with my NFTs, you know, I haven't really sold very many NFTs, as you know. But when I do look at the gains, which is, I I try not to focus on it too much because I try to more focus on which artifacts are going to have more cultural value long-term. I think about them in ether terms. And I think that that mindset is pretty important because we're not looking, a lot of us who are participating in this are not looking to like, Exit the system back to fiat. We are contributing to the growth of a decentralized economy. So I think it's like a pretty subtle point, but one that's going to be like extremely important over the course of the next decade. Yeah, I'm curious on the ETH to
0: staking side. It, those mm-hmm. interest rates were phenomenal in the early early days. I believe there is a published kind of uh, chart that shows how they slowly, uh, as more and more it becomes staked, the the, the interest rate goes down, and then Correct move. I haven't done it yet, so I'm, I'm I'm eth staking curious. Have you eth staked yet or no? I have. Yep. I okay. So what I staking. do is I I just do Gemini earn and and granted it's a much lower percentage, but it gives me the access to get out of that and back into ETH and then I I can go buy an NFT if I want to you know do some kind of crazy purchase. So when you stake in ETH two, you are locking it up until the launch of ETH two. Like
1: there's no way to get out of it. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, and there may be some exchanges which allow you to do to to get out of it sooner, but basically they're then taking on that risk and they're just kind of switching it with you for liquid ether. And so but but that's for now that is the case. Once the merge occurs, which let's say optimistically might be like in the next six months even, then basically all of that ether is withdrawable and you'll be able to transfer it, you'll be able to sell it, you'll be able to do whatever you want with those taking moves. Right. And then who do you stake with right now? So I I have some going in like independent validators. I have some with like Coinbase and entities like that. So I think that for most people, it's still, it's not something I would necessarily recommend people jump into right now because of that inability to withdraw. So I think it's, I don't think it's a bad idea just to wait until the merge before you're staking. And right now, I think the last time I checked, 6.5% of the entire Ether supply is in staking, which is actually a really high number given how much Ether is worth. So that's worth something like $24 billion. Wow, crazy. And then
0: these rates are going to go down, though, as we approach the the merger, correct?
1: They will, yes. Yeah. So those rates those rates will drop based on the amount of the the income you earn, which I think that the current reward rate is about like 5%. So we'll see what it normalizes that, Kevin. And that's in Ether terms, by the way, not in U.S. dollar terms, I think. I would have to I actually have to double check that, but I'm, I'm looking at a dashboard right now. But basically, you can expect that the more Ether is staked, the lower the reward will get. And so, you know, there's just a balance there. But if you're long-term ETH holder and you don't really care about like the U.S. dollar price that much, then staking becomes a pretty attractive way to just earn extra income. Yeah, Maybe I'll just go, because I saw Coinbase is offering it. Do they take
0: a big cut or is it better to do it independently from Coinbase? Because I saw there's a bunch of different ways to stake eth too. They,
1: de- they definitely take a healthy percentage. I want to say it's something like 25%, but that may be, you know, for someone who doesn't want to manage it or, or doesn't want to deal with the custody risk or whatever, that may be worth it. So I think right now they're paying 5%. So they're keeping everything else that's on top of that. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Well, I'll have to look into this. Maybe I do an episode on, on staking ETH2. Probably be good. Cool. So uh, Robinhood has a crypto app coming out in October, um, mm-hmm. which is crazy. They, they are going to be supporting because right now, I believe you cannot send any crypto that you buy in Robinhood to outside addresses, which is, which is nice in that it's, it's simple. And I get that logistically on their back end, it makes things a lot easier. And this is the reason why of PayPal started that way as well. W- what
1: are your thoughts on this? So I think that this is definitely the right move, and I know PayPal announced a move like this previously as well. And I don't think they've enabled it yet, if I understand correctly. But before the way that these at these platforms operated was, you would buy the crypto, and, it, and let's just hope they're buying the crypto on your behalf on the back end. But you couldn't withdraw it. Basically, it was stuck within their little ecosystem, and you could sell it, and you could withdraw that US or you could, you know, buy something else with that money. Now being able to withdraw the crypto, I think it's a positive just because it helps to expand the number of people actually using the ecosystem and it reinforces these assets as useful assets in these decentralized economies, not just these ways to like make money and then sell to U.S. dollar and pull out.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a fantastic move for them. You have to imagine Robinhood is going to be adding NFT support soon. When does Jack change his mind with Square and add, and add <laughs> Ethereum support?
1: I don't know, but I mean, there was actually a leak where someone looked into, I don't know where they got the information, but it was some kind of a leak. And, they, and it showed that Twitter was experimenting with showing like Ethereum wallet addresses within Twitter. So I don't know if that will happen, but I think it's, to me, when I look at it, Kevin, it's this is kind of like Twitter's game to lose. Because Twitter has emerged as a core hub within what I'll call this metaverse, where people are economically and socially interacting with one another, a lot of the discussion is happening on Twitter. And if and if they're not going to play the game of you know incorporating these Web three NFT assets and other assets in a meaningful way, someone else is going to do it. So I, I we'll, we'll see how it plays out.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and I, I just. I wonder if Jack knows he's a red laser like if he's like totally if he knows he's a maximus on bitcoin he has to know right like I I just don't see how you it's it's how you say it's all about bitcoin forever and I hold bitcoin I love bitcoin it's mm-hmm. great it's it's like the OG project but I I just it's so confusing to me anyway well I hope I hope that comes to Coinbase cash uh, as well because the cash app is is a fantastic app, and and they've they've been such a uh, trailblazer in so many ways, you know, and, and adding Bitcoin support very early. I love to see them continue to evolve that, but it looks like Robinhood is really stepping up here, which is awesome to see. Maybe it'll force their hand, which
1: is great. Absolutely.
0: Um. All right. So next story around uh, the launch of Arbitrum.
1: Yeah, and I touched on this briefly earlier, but Arbitrum is a new layer two solution built on Ethereum with a technology called optimistic rollups, and basically. The way that this works is you have to bridge your assets into Arbitrum and then you have to bridge them to get them out of Arbitrum. But Arbitrum is actually a near EVM compatible execution layer that it, that is built on and secured by Ethereum. And what that means is your transaction data is actually stored on Ethereum. Every time you make a transaction on Arbitrum, that transaction data gets stored on Ethereum in a compressed manner. And so this is kind of one of the first general purpose L2s that's really getting rolling. And another major one that's coming out of Testnet soon, or or I guess out of the developer preview is Optimism, which is another optimistic rollup. So what we're seeing is these technologies are going to allow users to use Ethereum in these layer two solutions, but for a far lower cost, potentially as low as five to 10% of current transaction fees, give or take. And It will actually scale as the technology improves on the roll-up and as usage grows on these roll-ups. So right now, the apps are not necessarily composable from layer two to layer one, but we are seeing a lot of apps create instances on Arbitrum. And I think that trend is going to continue. And I think we're now at something like $3 billion on Arbitrum or something like that. I don't remember the exact number. Looks like $2.4 billion which is a pretty healthy chunk. you know. I think that's comparable with a lot of the activity that we're seeing on other layer ones to, to some extent. And I think that will just continue to grow as more apps migrate over and create instances in Arbitrum. I'm curious to get your take on whether or not these layer
0: twos are truly decentralized because I've heard some pushback in that people are saying, well, some of them claim they'll eventually get there. Others kind of are, are, are kind of... Uh, what what's the current state of affairs on the decentralization side?
1: So I think with these true layer two technologies, and I want to I'll differentiate it by saying the layer two technologies are different from side chains. So like Polygon is a side chain, for example, a really successful one that I think is very important to the Ethereum ecosystem. That is not using Ethereum layer one for its security in the same way that a layer two is. But for these layer twos, I think there's going to be a very strong impetus towards getting them decentralized. Right now, their, their bridge contracts are still centralized. And I get it. Like, you know, this is still all like, let's call it like alpha technology. Mm-hmm. Like, And I think there needs to be a maturation process that these go through. But like, there are some guarantees that you have even using these now. So once that bridge contract is 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 made, where they basically burn the keys to it, no one's going to be able to steal your funds on the other side of these rollups. And I think that might, that might even be true now. I don't know. Technically I'll have to, I'm actually having a conversation with someone after this. So I'll ask, but I know that like, you know, one of the benefits of rollups is your funds cannot be stolen. You can always execute a transaction on layer one to get your, but you know, assets out of layer two. And I think that's really the fundamental like value proposition. There are other concerns around, well, the transaction sequences on layer two, can they censor some forms of activity and so on? I think that it's up to these teams to really work to decentralize their sequencers, these transaction sequencers. And I know that a lot of teams have that like as a goal that they're trying to achieve in the near to midterm. But I think for now, there are some centralization trade-offs to consider.
0: Yeah, that's going to be a fun one to watch over the coming months and, and years to see how, how this all plays out. That was my only my only concern. I've, I've heard that. And I've seen some outages too, which is also concerned me. I think it was, who was it? Was it a Polygon that had an outage recently? Somebody had an outage for... It,
1: it was actually Arbitrum. Oh, their was sequencer Arbitrum? Okay. had an outage. But even in that situation, Kevin, you can still execute a transaction on layer one, which will which will work on layer two. It's just their transaction sequencer so that you get the cheaper transaction doesn't work. Oh, interesting. So I can
0: go into layer 1, I can execute a transaction that will pull my funds out of that layer 2 even though the layer that layer 2 is quote unquote down,
1: even though the sequencer is down. Yes, that's correct.
0: Oh, that's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So that that's the benefit of storing that data back on layer 1 then. So you have that that way to interact with it even if it goes down.
1: Exactly. Yeah, the way that I think of layer 2, the analogy that I've used is Think of, think if Ethereum layer one is Manhattan, you know, right now without any layer twos, it's basically like barns and one story houses built on Manhattan. The layer twos are like skyscrapers being built on Manhattan. So they increase the potential density of economic activity that can occur on Ethereum.
0: Mm, makes sense. Speaking of outages, Solana. Yeah. Man, that was a tough one to, to sit through. It was 18 the, hours. It was, it was a yeah, time.
1: Something like that, and it, you know, and I know the Solana team has kind of reinforced the fact that they're kind of like beta technology, and what they are trying to achieve is pretty, you know. I mean, the the level of throughput that they're working to deliver is not insignificant, and so my understanding of what happened, Kevin, is basically a denial of service attack where where the RAM resources of the validators were basically overwhelmed and they couldn't process transactions. Yeah, I mean the
0: the way I look at this, and I, I know the Solana team quite well is, you know, they've they've had a few of these issues in the past and they have always said they are, are beta. It gets scarier and scarier the more that these assets move over, more that DeFi starts to move over and transact, the more this needs to be a stable network, right? But right. that said, I'd much rather get these bugs out of the way now than, you know, three years from now. <laughs> so the the, the mm-hmm. tricky part, though, is on the reboot of the network, And this is what it thankfully none of this happened, but they were talking about how when the reboot network occurs, it it more or less has like the last state that it was in and things have changed. Whereas bots can go in and say, well, the price of Solana has changed. I'm going to execute these transactions as quick as possible to kind of get that Delta and capture that upside before everything gets caught up and up to speed. And so there can be issues there where when a service is down, you know the prices are constantly evol- evolving on other networks and it sets up opportunities for 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 bots to have some type of arbitrage here which right. is which is is scary but you know it it it's just the it has to that that will always be the case
1: yeah i think it's a reminder that there's always trade offs in different technologies and and i get the techno- the trade offs that solana is making and i think that's suitable and fine for some use cases there's going to be others where people might not want to deploy as much money into an environment like that. The only way to figure this out is just to let the market kind of evolve on these over time. And I think, you know, while Ethereum isn't perfect and is expensive to use at times, it it is really remarkable that even over seven years, it's never stopped producing blocks. And one of the things that, one of the reasons why Ethereum is able to do that is because it has multiple clients that basically operate on the same state and run the network. And so, if one of them has a bug, which we have seen a couple of times, the other clients can take over. And while the network will slow down, it'll still produce blocks. So I think those are like the, every every network has a different trade off. Right. Yeah. And that, that was the issue. Well, that was the they actually
0: Ethereum had a potential exploit that came against it here a couple of weeks back and had no problem because it was only one client that was infected. There was a couple of proposed forks and then it just kinda of went back to normal operation actually the when the attack didn't work, right? So that, right. that was that was really cool to see. The one thing I will give Solana props for is that they advertised 50,000 transactions per second the network failed at around 400,000 transactions per yeah. second which is just nuts that that actually was able to happen cuz they but yeah it was so it was impressive to see the technology working but there's a few yeah i think the multiple clients will, would be a huge one the number of validators is still right around a 1000 that needs to be 10 20 50 100,000 or more and the issue with Solana though is because it's so performant it requires bleeding edge hardware to run these nodes right so in some sense and i i'm no you know i'm not an engineer working on this project but like you almost like i feel like Solana needs like a slow version and a fast version where they can get more people running standard nodes that run it maybe a Thousand transactions per second, you know, or you could opt and say, give me, give me the more performant version of Solana if I need it for something. Right. I I just, but, but they need that, that diversity in, in validators and they, and they need, so that, that's going to be a big push for them, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. I think, and I think having this spectrum of, decentralization trade-offs is, is good for the ecosystem because not everything necessarily needs the same level of security. Even if in the Ethereum ecosystem, as part of that roll-up technology that we were talking about earlier, there are technologies like Validium, which use a roll-up-like construct, but the data is stored, instead of being stored on-chain, it's being stored off-chain. And so you have some centralization trade-off there But the difference is that you can do a lot more transactions per second. You can do it a lot more cheaply. So I think that, you know, the market is naturally big enough where you're going to have demand all the, uh, across all those levels realistically.
0: Yeah. Well, this is this could be fun to watch. I mean, it's certainly I believe Solana have, will will serve use cases that no other blockchain will be able to. So it, that at that high of throughput, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see. So off top, DC Investor, thank you so much for for coming on. I know we're running up on our hour and a half here, and we've got other stuff to do today. But always a pleasure to get your insights in this crazy wild world. Likewise, thank you, Kevin. Always enjoyed the opportunity to chat with you. Awesome. We'll have you back on again soon, hopefully.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: All right and of course people can find you at IMDC Investor on Twitter and uh, that's you also how often do you write your newsletter by the way
1: you know i created that blog and i've i i need to i need to i have a couple of posts in draft but i haven't gotten around to finishing them but i feel free to give it a subscribe and when i when i do push something out you'll be the first to know yeah that's that's you and i are in the same boat i have this newsletter
0: of like you know tens of thousands of people are sitting there waiting for some update i'm just never have the time to do it that's right (laughs) but hopefully this will be the more timely content on podcasts like this so awesome well we'll talk soon okay thanks kevin